Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast, a podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. On this episode, we have a fantastic interview with the legend herself, Dr. Mary O'Connor. To say that Dr. O'Connor has been a pioneer in the field of orthopedics is an absolute understatement. Her impressive leadership resume includes being the former chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic in Florida and being the current director of the Center for Musculoskeletal Care here at the Yale School of Medicine and Yale New Haven Health. Dr. O'Connor has also served as president of the International Society of Limb Salvage, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, the Musculoskeletal Tumor Society, the Association of Bone and Joint Surgeons, and the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. She is also the chair of the Movement is Life Caucus, which is a multidisciplinary coalition seeking to eliminate racial, ethnic, and gender disparities in muscle and joint health. It was truly an honor to speak with such an inspirational surgeon, and I am so excited to share our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Mary O'Connor. We're official. Okay, we're official. I'm I know. Excited. Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for mm-hmm. agreeing to talk with me and for everything that you do. Um, I was hoping that we can just start the conversation of just describing your backgrounds, where you went to medical school, residency, as well as your post-fellowship years. I went to, um, I was an undergraduate here at Yale. Mm -hmm. I went to medical school at Drexel. I was uh, then accepted to orthopedic residency program at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I stayed there to do my orthopedic oncology fellowship Mm -hmm. and then went on staff at Mayo Clinic Florida, where I was for the vast majority of my career until I came here to Yale about four and a half years ago. Wow, that's amazing. So Dr. Connor, you have done so much for the field of orthopedics, and so I do kind of want to just dive in. And you have done a significant amount of work to help eliminate health disparities in this country. Um, And I was hoping that you can first at least provide our listeners with a brief overview of what health disparities, what that phrase means. So that's an excellent question. And the way I describe this to people is I say, you know, a health disparity is when different people, because of their gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, some characteristic that they possess receive different care than than someone else Mm -hmm. that's a disparity because ideally if people have a certain medical condition they should all receive the same type of care whatever that standard of care is and it shouldn't be less Mm -hmm. if you're a woman or an individual of color but the reality is that The reality is that women and individuals of color in this country mm-hmm. have received less equitable care. Right. Fantastic. And so you are the chair of the Movement is Life Caucus. Yes. Which is a multidisciplinary coalition uh, seeking to eliminate racial, ethnic, and gender disparities in muscle and joint health by promoting physical mobility to improve quality of life among women, African-Americans, as well as Hispanics. 
And so I was wondering if you can talk to us about when did you first decide to become involved in the Movement of Life Caucus and why did you eventually want to lead this caucus? So I first became involved uh, with the Movement of Life Caucus when it was created 10 years ago. And I've been honored uh, to lead it Mm -hmm. since its inception. And it is the most diverse group I have ever been involved with. I mean, we have not just healthcare providers, not just orthopedic surgeons and primary care doctors and nurses, Mm -hmm. but we have people from the insurance industry. We have community leaders. We have religious leaders because because we have to change the way we think about delivering healthcare. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, our system doesn't work very well unless you have a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. Because if you have resources, then you can buy access and right. you, and and you get prompt care mm-hmm. and usually you know care by very very skilled people and we simply have to figure out a way that we can deliver better care to the population as a whole mm-hmm. and that means transforming the delivery of care mm-hmm. i have in my personal journey mm-hmm. of of understanding disparities and really seeing the complexities of our healthcare system. I have come to believe passionately that we have to move wellness care mm-hmm. out of the doctor's office and into our communities. We have to understand how we can better manage chronic conditions and prevent chronic conditions from occurring or progressing right. with community-based programs. Because the reality is, is that we physicians do an absolutely lousy job in terms of promoting and achieving wellness. And when we have a patient who's obese, and I'll just use obesity because it's such a healthcare crisis, Mm -hmm. right? Um, An obese patient goes to see their physician, whether that's a primary care physician or an orthopedic surgeon, and do we focus on obesity? We might tell them, Mm -hmm. you're heavy, it would really help you to lose weight, but do we give them the tools and, and resources to support them? Do we help them with their journey to actual behavior change? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. We fail these patients. And the health of our country has declined. And and so we have to really rethink how we're going to deliver wellness care Mm -hmm. and management and prevention of some chronic conditions. I'm going to give you an overview of really the essence of, of, of concepts around health disparities, particularly with uh, relative to musculoskeletal. Mm-hmm. So just stay with me for a second. First, we have what we call the medical vicious cycle. And the thing about the medical vicious cycle, it is an equal opportunity employer. Mm-hmm. You could be an affluent white male CEO and get trapped in the medical vicious cycle just like an obese woman of color who lives in the inner city who has, you know, no income. Right. And that medical vicious cycle goes like this. You injure your knee, you have knee pain. Because your knee hurts, you become less active. Mm -hmm. Then you gain weight because you haven't changed your eating pattern. That weight gain puts more pressure on your knee. And so you're in this cycle. More knee pain, more weight gain. More obesity, more knee pain. Ultimately leading to arthritis, disabling arthritis. But what is associated with both the immobility and the obesity are life-threatening conditions of diabetes, 
hypertension, heart disease, and depression. Mm -hmm. So now we see this individual, this patient coming in who's got knee pain, knee arthritis, they're immobile, they're obese, and they're sick. Right. And they're depressed. Okay. And now they show up in in my orthopedic surgery office and they want fixed. Okay. Right. And so particularly as we're now in the healthcare economic world of bundled payments, that patient is a lemon. And we see cherry picking of healthier patients. We have data that shows that in in hospitals that participate in bundled payment programs for hip and knee replacement, that that the patients now are healthier mm-hmm. and and basically are less likely to need skilled nursing facility care after discharge. And what that means is African-American patients mm-hmm. and women and um, individuals of color, Hispanic, Latina patients, are disadvantaged. Right. Okay. So that's the medical vicious cycle. Equal opportunity employer. Mm-hmm. But yet we know that it's more likely that women and individuals of color get trapped in that cycle. Mm-hmm. We know that they have higher rates of obesity, knee arthritis, and other comorbid conditions. And that's because around that medical vicious cycle is a ring of social determinants of health. And around that ring of social determinants of health is a ring of public and private policy. Mm-hmm. So s- policy impacts social determinants, Social determinants impacts the medical vicious cycle. If you live in an unsafe neighborhood, you cannot go out and walk at night. You cannot increase your level of physical activity to break the medical vicious cycle. Okay? Right. If you have poor access to good um, nutrition Mm -hmm. because there is no uh, grocery uh, store in your neighborhood that has fresh fruit and vegetables, then you're going to eat all kinds of starch and carbohydrates and your nutrition isn't as good and you gain weight. Mm-hmm. And we see that um, that story played out not just in the inner cities, but in rural America as well. Mm-hmm. And that is something else that I think most people don't appreciate, that health disparities exist not just for individuals of color in our big cities, but they also exist for for Caucasians in lower socioeconomic demographics. Right. And and so this is really a, a I think a, a national health crisis right. that we need to mm-hmm. understand and work to address. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Connor. I really appreciate you taking the time because I think it's not something that's commonly taught about in residency or in medical school for that matter. And I was hoping if you can take a moment to humble brag about what the Movement Is Life Caucus has been able to do. I'm really proud of the of what we've accomplished in our relatively short 10 years. Right. We focus our efforts on uh, in four areas. One are healthcare providers, one are patients, the third is community, and the fourth is policymakers. Mm-hmm. And I'll share with you just a couple things that, that we've been uh, doing um, that are really impactful and helping to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Um, on the policy side, we partnered uh, with Congressman John Lewis, mm-hmm. uh, and he has introduced the um, Equality in Medicare and Medicaid Treatment Act, EMMT Act. Mm-hmm. And what that act requires 
is for CMMI, which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, to take into account whether a payment model, a proposed payment model, exacerbates disparities. Mm. So that was not a requirement for CMMI in the past. So what we've seen is these bundled payments being created Mm -hmm. with the criteria for CMMI being, does it save money Mm -hmm. and is the quality the same or better? And if those conditions are met, they say, okay, we can pilot this. And there is no lens looking at access Mm -hmm. or disparities. And that that was an unintended consequence of that of the original Affordable Care Act and the the CMMI Mm -hmm. uh, effort with new payment models. So uh, Congressman Lewis's bill would uh, correct that by requiring also a lens of access and disparities when new payment models are being looked at. Mm -hmm. So we're uh, optimistic um, that, that that legislation would be supported. And of course, we're praying for Congressman Lewis's health and um, you know, hopeful that we can we can make um, make that legislation uh, uh, be adopted. We have also done some very innovative work um, with the on the com- in terms of community programs. Mm-hmm. We have a program called Operation Change, and Operation Change is an eighteen week community based program for women. Wow! And we have. Uh, piloted this program Uh, we're more than we're past the pilot stage now but we have had programs in both urban and rural settings Mm -hmm. and the program focuses on women Mm -hmm. Uh, and not that you couldn't use this for men but we know that these disparities musculoskeletal disparities impact women more so than men and so the program focuses on women who are obese and have knee pain and they come and it's three hours and the first hour is some educational session. So we teach them about nutrition or or the vicious cycle mm-hmm. or depression and, and really an educational session. There's an hour devoted towards movement that could be salsa or, you know, yoga, something mm-hmm. like that. And then the third hour, which I, I really think is the critical hour, involves motivational interviewing. Hmm. So the facilitators are meeting with these women in smaller groups and really getting to the heart of why is it hard for them to make the behavior changes that would improve their health? Hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's an individual who makes a choice. Am I going to go out and walk? Mm -hmm. Am I going to eat healthier? Am I going to take better care of myself or not? Right. And we have some really positive early data Mm -hmm. showing improvement in knee pain in these women without shots, without seeing the doctor, without physical therapy, Uh although they're doing therapy essentially at the sessions, right? Right. And improvement in their sense of hopelessness. Hmm. It has been a program that has um, exceeded my original expectations of what we could do. And it has, it has shown me that the key is this connection and the women feel connected to each other and they are very supportive of each other. Mm-hmm. And it comes back to we as human beings need to feel a sense of belonging. Right. 
And when we feel that we belong and that we can help one another, it, we can be motivated to make these changes. So I have learned so much from these women in, right. in these programs. And we continue now to roll that Operation Change program out. And again, comes back to this concept of moving wellness care and promotion of wellness and management of chronic conditions out of the doctor's office and into the community mm-hmm. where it can be delivered at, a, at an, a very low cost right, and very effectively. Uh, another fascinating, innovative um, program uh, that we've created is a unique shared decision-making tool. Hmm. So as we look to understand how do we really engage patients so that their preferences are recognized and incorporated in the medical decision-making process, mm-hmm. right? Um, we've looked at shared decision-making tools and the tools that are out there mm-hmm. are very, uh, they're generic from the standpoint of gender, race, ethnicity, and comorbidities. Mm-hmm. There's shared decision-making tools about knee pain and knee replacement surgery, but none that look at individuals as individuals. So our tool has data inputs of gender. Mm -hmm. So are you a man or a woman? Are you Caucasian, African-American, Hispanic, Latina? Mm -hmm. Do you have hypertension and diabetes? Are you obese? What is your current knee pain? What is your current knee level of function? And what we use educational level as a proxy for income. And then through work that we've done with some really smart expert people at, uh, at Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. using various databases, what we can do is say to that individual woman, okay, if you do lifestyle management, if you lose weight and increase your level of physical activity, you know what? Your knee pain is going to improve. Right. And in three years, you're going to go from six, we anticipate you'll be at a level two or three out of 10 pain, and your function will improve. And your income will be protected because you're not going to get, uh, you'll be eligible for a promotion. Mm-hmm. You won't be missing days of from work because you're sick or your knee is incapacitating you. Right. Um, and we can also project out at six years. So, so there's kind of like in a shorter term and a longer term mm-hmm. projection. We give people three options in this tool. The first is the default, which is do nothing. Because the reality is, is that most patients do nothing. Right. They go see the doctor who says, your knee hurts and you have mild or moderate arthritis. You need to lose weight and exercise. Mm-hmm. But they don't do it. Okay. The second option would be lifestyle modification, as I mentioned. And the third could be per the physician. Cortisone injection, formal physical therapy, things like that. And so it gives the patient the opportunity to see what she or he will look like Mm -hmm. in the future based on their choices and individualized for someone who is more like them. Mm -hmm. Because the databases, we we pulled out all this data based on those those, uh, characteristics of gender, race, ethnicity, and some comorbid conditions, including obesity. So we are very excited. We're going to be piloting this tool uh, with some medical practices and, and really see this as a way of engaging patients to, <laughs> to help adopt 
uh, better health, right? Right. Because the key is, the key is earlier intervention to keep that patient from developing end-stage osteoarthritis Mm -hmm. and needing joint replacement surgery. Wow. Right? Yeah. Because it's not just the joint replacement surgery that, it's not just end-stage osteoarthritis they develop. They've also developed obesity, Mm -hmm. hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, depression. Mm -hmm. So we're very excited about that as well. Right. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Connor. And I know that you have done so much work and continue to do so much work for the Movement is Life Caucus. And so I was hoping you can talk about what the future directions are for this organization. I know I saw that on your website, you have a podcast as well. We do. I know. I was very impressed. Thank you. Um, our, and our podcasts are so much fun and uh, they've done very well. Right. Um, so our future directions are promoting um, the pro- some of these programs that I've mentioned, particularly mm-hmm. our Operation Change community-based program, getting our shared decision-making tool out there and being more widely used, mm-hmm. getting the um, Congressman Lewis um, Equality in Medicare and Medicaid Treatment Act passed, and then um, continuing to push for better education of healthcare providers and better uh, diversity in our um, healthcare workforce, particularly in orthopedic surgery, which, as you and I both know so very well, uh, is the surgical specialty with the lowest percentage of women, right, and a very also a low percentage of, of individuals of color. Correct. And so there's a lot of work for us to do there. Right. Fantastic. Um, speaking of the lack of gender diversity in orthopedics, I would love to switch our conversation with regard to your work. Um, and I know that I've done a significant amount of research regarding the lack of gender diversity in orthopedics. And one of the things that I've always found is literally your name in all of these research articles. And I was hoping that you can talk about your inspiration for being a leader to increase the number of women in orthopedics. Because I'm assuming that back um, when you were a resident and it probably wasn't a very popular opinion for women to be talking about this. And so I was wondering if you can talk about, you know, what, how you were able to be so courageous to speak up, be a leader and do research about the lack of women in orthopedics. Uh, Well, thank you for your kind comments. I, I don't really see it as courageous. I just always saw it as the right thing to do. Hmm. And the reason why I feel so strongly it's the right thing to do is because women in particular, I, women in particular and individuals of color are not getting equitable care. Mm-hmm. And when we look at the composition of orthopedic surgeons, and we see that they're so predominantly white males, Mm -hmm. we have to ask the question, if the workforce was more diverse, would we deliver better health care to a diverse population? And I absolutely believe that answer is yes. Mm. Now, on an individual orthopedic surgeon level, do I think that any of my male white partners consciously discriminate against women or individuals of color? No, I don't. I don't. I think they're good people. They're good doctors. They want to do the right thing, but they don't understand their unconscious bias. And they may not understand that, that some patients simply 
are uncomfortable um, having uh, trusting them, so to speak. I mean, just yesterday I was in clinic and there's a woman who desperately needs a hip replacement. And, and she should have had it two years ago when she saw one of my partners here, right. who's an excellent surgeon. And I said to her, um, I'm curious, you know, you saw Dr. So-and-so two years ago and I read his note and he talked to you about hip replacement surgery. Why is it that you didn't go ahead then? And she said, I wasn't comfortable with him. Mm. I came to see you because you're a woman. Mm. Now, so there, so it is not that necessarily the fault of my male partner right. that she wasn't comfortable with him. He cannot change his gender, okay? And, he, and he's a good doctor. But what it highlights is that we cannot solve all of our cultural, societal issues overnight. And if the path towards better health equity is having a diverse workforce, then we need to start moving in that direction. Mm. Ideally, it wouldn't matter if there was concordance between the physician and the patient, right. either gender, race, or ethnicity, right? It mm -hmm. wouldn't matter. Everybody would get the same kind of care. Mm -hmm. But there are bias issues on both the physician side or the healthcare provider side, as well as the patient, right? right? My patient yesterday, I, I would clearly say that she had a bias against this white male orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we, we, we're not going to get all these problems solved over, overnight, but one path forward is to improve the diversity of the workforce. The more diverse the workforce, the better we will be at creating solutions. Mm -hmm. And I'll share a brief story that I use in my diversity talk because the idea is how do we open people's eyes to why diversity is so important mm -hmm. without making them get defensive. Right. <laughs> right? Because if you're the white male orthopedic surgeon, you're like, look, I'm a good guy. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to take good care of my patients. I'm not the problem. Okay. So the story goes about airbags. And first generation airbags were created by a team that was predominantly male engineers. And we know that first generation airbags killed women, children, and small men. And so I show this picture, you know, in, the, in my talk, and I ask the audience, does anyone think these engineers were incompetent? No, they were smart engineers. Mm -hmm. Does anyone think that Detroit invested millions and millions of dollars in creating this safety device, meaning an airbag, with the intent of killing children, women, and small men? Of course not. Right. So how could this colossal error have happened? I mean, when you think about it, this was a major mess up. Right. Okay. Yeah. It happened because nobody on the team thought to test what would happen if I put my baby in the passenger side, in the passenger seat, and the airbag went off. Mm -hmm. What would happen if I had my child there? Right. So it was never tested, mm -hmm. except against the average passenger, which we translate is an average male. Mm -hmm. And that's how this airbag tragedy occurred. Mm -hmm. Now, let's, let's imagine that that design team had more diversity. Let's imagine that there were some women on there who had small children. Maybe I think they would have said, hey, what if my 
child's in that front seat. Right. We should test this device. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why diversity on your team is so critical because without diversity on your team, good leaders, well-intentioned, smart, educated leaders are going to make what I call the airbag mistake. The, mm. the airbag tragedy mistake right. because they don't see what they don't know. Mm -hmm. They're not seeing what they don't see. They have their perspective from their background and cultural upbringing, and they're not, they're not seeing a bigger, bigger picture. That's why it's so critical. Mm. And that's why there's a lot of evidence now in business that says if you have more diversity, particularly gender diversity, mm -hmm. on your board, companies have higher uh, profit margins hmm. they're making because they're making better decisions right so if we have more diversity in medical leadership and particularly in orthopedics mm -hmm. we will make better decisions that will benefit our patients and our profession yeah fantastic thank you so much dr o'connor and i think that that's i never thought of the airbag as being such a excellent metaphor of just like that decision-making process and how the diversity of your team literally helps to bring diversity of thought. And so that's, that's, that's just brilliant. Um, I was hoping if you can talk about um, in your time, have you noticed the change in the composition of women in orthopedics or a change regarding the thought process and the sentiment of women in orthopedics? Um, yes and no. So we have improved the absolute percent, the numbers. There, are, There's a right. higher percentage of women as orthopedic surgery residents. So mm -hmm. when I was a resident, we were at 5%. Mm -hmm. Now we're at 13%. But we are the lowest of all the surgical subspecialties in terms of percent of women in residency programs. Mm -hmm. When I was training, we were third from the bottom. Okay. Right. So we've actually gone backwards instead of forwards. Mm -hmm. um, I do believe that there is more um, acceptance and understanding and desire to have more diversity in the profession. That's very good. Mm -hmm. However, we still hear, even now, stories from women in medical school that are discouraged from considering orthopedics because someone says, well, if you want to have a family, you can't be an orthopedic surgeon right. or you're not strong enough or it's just so hard. You don't want to do it, mm -hmm. which is all a bunch of total ridiculousness. Mm -hmm. And that to me is still very discouraging. The other comment that I'll make is that I, I find it a little frustrating at times that younger women orthopedic surgeons think the problems are solved. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I do think that the path is easier and better in more entry-level positions. Mm -hmm. But as you move up, I find that there are still um, challenges and barriers to women in leadership in medicine. And so we still have a lot of work to do. And, right. I, and I think that um, younger women in the profession need to be, it would be positive for them to be aware of these issues. Mm -hmm. And if they want to become leaders, to, to do leadership training earlier in their careers. Mm -hmm. 
And when I give advice to young women in orthopedics, I typically will tell them, we'll talk about two things. One is if they have a family that they should consider working part-time early on when the children are little. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I get this skeptical look like, because, well, because if I only work four days a week, then I'm going to be looked at by my peers in the department as being weak. Okay. But, and, and that's, I think that's true because we still keep this. If I'm not working just the same or as hard as the guys, right. Then somehow I'm not as valuable. No, it's so true. Okay. And then I say, but let me give you an alternative scenario. The alternative scenario is you work four days a week instead of five. You have a day where you can go to the to your child's school if you want. You can go to doctor's appointments. You can just have time for you. Or you can be working on your paper mm-hmm. or your academic productivity. Because if your goal is to become an academic leader, then you need to be academically productive. And the earlier in your career you can do that, mm-hmm. the better off you will be. Mm-hmm. So look at the you've got to take the long view on this and you and it's very very difficult to do it all at the same time i i use this story when my children were little Mm -hmm. and one of them wouldn't feel well in the middle of the night they would come in and they did not go to my husband's side of the bed they never went to my husband's side of the bed he was the stay-home parent they came to my side of the bed and woke me up they wanted to get into bed next to me mm-hmm. now it's not that they didn't love their father right. and it's not that he right he's the yeah they wanted mom mm-hmm. and that's when i came to appreciate there there is simply biology that you cannot ignore right and they didn't it didn't matter to them they didn't know if i had a huge surgical day the next day mm-hmm. and that i really needed to sleep all they knew was they didn't feel well and they wanted mom mm-hmm. so <laughs> again i i say it's okay to say you're going to work four days a week instead of five. Right. Give yourself a little bit of cushion and allow yourself the opportunity to advance in other aspects of your professional career. Mm-hmm. Write the grant, mm-hmm. right? Get some really good stuff going in your professional life that you would be able to do with greater ease because you have a little more time. Because the reality is, is that women, even professional women, Mm -hmm. still do more of the house tasks and family tasks than their husband, Mm -hmm. okay? And there's still only 24 hours in your day. Right. I'll share a a story with you. I was giving a talk at one of the Ruth Jackson events, and it was kind of like my top 10 tips for women. Right. And on one of the slides, I have a picture of a bathtub, and the rule is, the tip is don't scrub the tub. Mm-hmm. And I said, how many of you here clean your bathroom at home? Raise your hand. And a lot of people raised their hand. I said, and there were some men, there were some male speakers there, some very prominent ones. So I asked a very prominent leading orthopedic surgeon. I asked him if he ever cleaned the bathroom at home. He said, no. And I said, ladies, If we want to get to this level, we don't scrub the tub. It's this simple. You don't have time to do this. You have money. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost that much. As soon as you can get help to come in and clean the house 
have somebody clean the house. You may have to accept that they may not clean it exactly as well as you would, but you don't have time. This should be the lowest thing on your priority list. Right. It should be your family, mm-hmm. right? It should be your work. It is not cleaning the bathroom. But we women sometimes, I think, get trapped in this, I have to do it all. Yes. You don't personally have to do it all. And men don't do it all. Men delegate. And we need to get better at delegating if we're going to create the opportunities for ourselves mm-hmm. to uh, become leaders. Right. Fantastic. What do you think needs to happen in order to increase the diversity in orthopedics for both women as well as for racial and ethnic diversity? Well, I think that um, we need to make orthopedics more attractive to women in particular. Mm-hmm. We, we need to go out there and market it and say, you can be an orthopedic surgeon and have a family. Right. You can be a petite woman and still be an orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. It is an extremely rewarding field. Like, why wouldn't you want to be an orthopedic surgeon? I mean, yeah. it's like the best kind of surgeon you could possibly be. 100%. Exactly. So true. So true. Exactly. So, um, so, so starting earlier with introducing them uh, to the field of orthopedics. So, for example, um, the Perry Initiative. Yes. Okay. Which is fantastic. Um, the, discla- the disclaimer here is I'm on the Perry uh, board. Of right. Tr- uh, uh, board. Okay. Um, for which I volunteer. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's uh, out of love. There's mm-hmm. no financial uh, remuneration. Um, and so Perry programs include programs for high school girls. They include for programs for women mm-hmm. in the first years of medical school. But also there's a f- really fun program. Uh, for middle school kids with kits that teach them things like external fixation. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, I had no uh, yeah, idea. That teachers use as part of their science curriculum. Oh, wow. Exactly. So it's really trying to get more uh, awareness right. um, to, to girls when they're younger. Mm-hmm. They also need to see role models mm-hmm. that they can do it. Yeah. Um, and we still need to work on our culture of orthopedic surgery, which is, right, that yeah. you've got to be strong and, um, you know, it's hard to have a family. Mm-hmm. And I think it's challenging for any uh, working woman, professional, any working professional yes. to have a family. Uh, but there's still this uh, resistance to supporting women, mm-hmm. no. essentially. That's true. I do want to talk about your history as a leader in the field of orthopedics. And this has started ever since you were at the Mayo Clinic in Florida, as well as here at Yale. And you've been the president of numerous societies, including the International Society of Limb Salvage, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, the Musculoskeletal Tumor Society, the Association of Bone and Joint Surgeons, and the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. And I was hoping that you can talk about when you were in medical school and when you were in residency, did you know that you wanted to be a leader in the field of orthopedics? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't know that I specifically thought about that. And that mm-hmm. is another thing that I advise young women on now. Mm-hmm. So when I first started um, as an attending, 
one of the implant reps wanted to take me to lunch and mm-hmm. get to know me because he was trying to get me to use his products. Right. right. And I was like, I don't have time to have lunch with you. Mm-hmm. Well, how about dinner? I'm like, nope, I'm not going to go have dinner with you. Right. Uh-huh. I said, if you if you want to see me, you know, I eat breakfast. You can meet me in the hospital cafeteria and you'll have 15 minutes. Right. He was like, great. Right. So he sat down and he said, I want to help you be successful. This was like, what can I do to help you? If mm-hmm. you, you know, we, maybe there's opportunity for us both. Right. He said, so where do you want to be in five years or 10 years? Mm-hmm. And I was taken aback by the question. My response to him was, which sounds so pathetic now, but it, actually I said, I am into day-to-day survival. Because mm-hmm. I, I remember very vividly the night before my son, our middle child, was was crawling down the stairs at this apartment. This was before we bought a house and 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 I was and I woke up and realized that somehow he had crawled out of his crib. He's going down the stairs and I'm like, oh my God, you know, like the baby's <laughs> going downstairs. And my husband is just completely, you know, sleeping through this whole thing. And I'm getting up and I'm, you know, then I'm getting him back to sleep, then I'm going to sleep. And so I was physically exhausted. Right. And I was literally thinking I am into day-to-day survival. This mm-hmm. is my life at the moment. I can't be thinking about five years from now or 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that the people do need to think about that. And you know what? Guys think about that much more so than women. Right. And it disadvantages women. Mm-hmm. Because I said, I'll get back to you on that. Right? right? Because now I need to say, all right, where is the opportunity for me here? Mm-hmm. And that conversation actually led me to host the first uh, joint, total joint replacement meeting that I ran in mm-hmm. the Florida Keys and really helped mo- move me along the uh, pathway of being a leader in arthroplasty. Right. Okay. Yeah. But it was it was such a kind of funny event for me. <laughs> because I remember like, no, I'm just trying to survive every day. Okay. And really what I needed to be thinking about was, well, where do I want to be in 10 years? Mm-hmm. So some of the advice that I give younger women is, where do you want to be in mm-hmm. 10 years? And then how are you positioning yourself now to get there? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if I was doing it all again, I would have worked four days instead of five when my children were little. Mm-hmm. I could have been a full professor 10 years earlier. Yeah. I could have gotten an NIH grant, which I've never received, which I always, you know, was always an aspirational goal. Right. I could have done even more earlier because there's certain credentials that you need mm-hmm. in order to go from, you know, one step to the next step and to go up the ladder. Right. Hmm. That's such a great story. Oh, gosh. When you earlier, you had mentioned that you also recommend that women partake in leadership training. Oh, yes. Can you expand on that? Like, what is that? What does that even mean? Do you go to a course? Do you just like start organizing things or what does that even mean? You know, I don't even know how I really got started in it, but I realized. And again, this is another uh, recommendation that I have for younger faculty or younger professionals, which is we are all leaders. An orthopedic surgeon is by default a leader. Mm-hmm. You lead your, your OR team, you lead people in your office, whether you're in private practice or in academics. Right. 
And so you will be a better orthopedic surgeon if you're a better leader. Mm -hmm. And if you are a better leader, you know what? Your patients are going to have better outcomes because you're going to have a better team. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many important aspects about leadership. And I mean, I could go on for a long time, but I'll just share a couple (laughs) that I think are really critical. Leaders are guardians of the learning system. I mm-hmm. learned this, I know, from a Harvard guy, but he's pretty smart. Okay. And and it took me a long time to understand exactly what he meant by that. This was a, a physician named Alan Frankel. Leaders are guardians of the learning system. That means that as a leader, I am responsible that my team continues to learn, hmm. continues to advance, right. continues to find new and better ways of doing our work. Mm-hmm. And in order for that to happen, the leader has to ensure psychological safety on the team. Mm-hmm. And that is so important because if there's not psycho- psychological safety on the team, no one will speak up mm-hmm. and you don't identify where the risks are and you don't identify the opportunities. Mm-hmm. And there was a recent study that Google did looking at their teams, mm-hmm. understanding why some of their teams performed better than others. Hmm. And what they discovered is that the teams that performed the best were not necessarily the people that, quote, had the smartest team members. Hmm. They were the teams that had strong psychological safety. Hmm. Because when you have that, Mm -hmm. people are comfortable raising concerns. Hmm. And if they're not, you miss huge opportunities and you put patients at risk right yeah i remember the first time i scrubbed with you we were doing a knee together and at the end of the case when we were i think we were waiting for the cement to dry you literally went to every single team member you went to me you went to scrub tech you went to the circulator you went to the rep and literally asked every single one of them what did we do well what do you think we can improve on and i was that was just such like a oh my goodness moment for me so we call that debriefing and my and i led that work at mayo Mm -hmm. And it was uh, some of the work I'm most proud of, changing, literally changing the culture in our operating room. Right. Because culture change is the hardest work for a leader to do. Right. And, and you know, I'll tell you one little short story about that. So, so there's many lessons I learned and, and, and in that change, which was really great mm-hmm. work that we did collectively together. Uh, We started with briefings because that's easier. The surgeon meeting with the team in the morning, going through the cases. It takes 10, 15 minutes. And then debriefing towards the end of each case. What did we do? I'll always start with the positives. Right. You know, like, hey, there's a lot of good things that we did. Mm -hmm. You know, we're pretty smart. You know, like, this is good. And then what could we do better? Mm -hmm. Um, So after we had done the debriefings for a while, I realized, like, why am I always leading the debriefings? Hmm. Why don't I empower other members of my team? They've heard me go through this. They know the deal. Right. Why don't they lead it? Hmm. It was like the light bulb went off in my head one day. And so I said, hey, guess what? Let's take turns on this. Hmm. And so I had the lowest person in terms of hierarchy mm-hmm. in the room lead the debrief. Hmm. And he's a guy named Ron. He was a fabulous scrub tech. He was wonderful. And so Ron goes around, and when we get to the who could do what better, right? Right. Um, he mentions 
that the resident could have done something better, which was absolutely correct. Right. Okay. There, there was some little fart around time. I mean, there was some stuff. I mean, the, we, we, it, nothing bad happened, right. but, but it could have been done better. Mm-hmm. It could have been done more efficiently. And so he gave this very factual feedback. And then as soon as he said it, he said, oh, well, I, you know, but you did so many good things. So he, he was in psychological safety when he gave the feedback. And then all of a sudden he realized like, oh my God, I'm like the slowly scrub tech. And here I am telling the resident that he could have done something better. Right. And I said to him, Ron, that's exactly correct. And kudos. I'm so proud of you. This is what we do as a team Mm -hmm. and we need to support each other and help each other see where our opportunities are. Right. And that's the only way we can get better. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Well done. Um, Do you think that we need to have more women in leadership positions in orthopedics? (laughs) Of course, we need to have more women in leadership positions in orthopedics. And we need to have more women in leadership positions in medicine, period. Right. How do do we get there? What What would you ideally like to see in order to... Is I feel like this is something that's going to take time, but what are some things that you, in an ideal world, you envision happening in order to get these women in leadership positions? Well, you know, there's a lot of a subtle but easy changes that can occur. For example, some companies now are saying that they're not going to support speaking events where there's just all men on a panel, for mm-hmm. example. Right. Right. So provide more opportunity for women Mm -hmm. to become recognized for their expertise and their leadership roles. Mm -hmm. I encourage the women to get leadership training, additional credentials. If you need an MBA, go get an MBA when you're younger. Mm -hmm. Right. The things that that they tend not to do because they're busy. Right. If they're having a family. Right. These are there's just only 24 hours in your day. Mm and then really setting an expectation collectively that we're going to have more diversity in our leadership. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy because people resist, it's, people fundamentally resist change. Mm-hmm. And creating a mindset that says, we have the opportunity to do better and we can do better, particularly if we have more diversity, mm-hmm. um, can be challenging because everybody says, that's great, but I don't want to change. Right. Okay. When fundamentally we all need to change. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Now, Dr. O'Connor, I know that your time is precious. And so I do want, and you're doing so many things. You're doing the Movement is Life Caucus. You're here at Yale, literally changing the way that we do total knee, total hip arthroplasties and the hip fracture protocols and your work with Ruth Jackson and all these things. So I was wondering if you can talk about your own future goals and projects that you're most excited about. That's an excellent question. And I would summarize it. I would summarize my future goals as being continued um, transformation of the way we're delivering care. Hmm. Because our healthcare system is so radically flawed. And right. I'm, I'm not talking about single payer. I'm talking about the way we're delivering care and how much 
better we can do mm-hmm. if we work as teams and and we can do things that improve our patient outcomes. Mm-hmm. Our, for example, our pre-opt, our pre-op optimization uh, pilot that mm-hmm. we created here um, at the Center for Hip and Knee Replacement Patients, and our paper, yay, just accepted at Journal of Arthroplasty. Congratulations. Thank you. And we've shown that we can decrease ED visits, readmissions, length of stay, mm-hmm. if we make the patient medically better, so to speak, before surgery. Hmm. Okay? I mean, this isn't like rocket science. This is right. simple stuff. Right. Is the patient anemic, borderline anemic? Okay, let's do some screening blood work. Make sure that looks okay. If it is, put them on iron. Mm-hmm. The nurse navigator does all this through protocols. Right. Says to the orthopedic surgeon, Dr. O'Connor, you need to delay Mrs. Jones's knee replacement. Let's let her hemoglobin, let's get a little better. Right. Right. And so then when she has surgery, I don't need to give her a transfusion. There's mm-hmm. less risk of a transfusion. And even though we know the risk of transfusion has gone down because now we use the drug TXA. But still. Right. But still, you know what? Her recovery will be better. She's going to feel better mm-hmm. if she's not anemic. So anemic and feeling so punk because now her hemoglobin is, you know, eight yes. instead of 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's things that we can do that change the outcome. Right. And and in order to do that, we really have to work as a multidisciplinary team mm. because the orthopedic surgeon, I don't have the expertise to do this medical optimization. I need a medical partner to help the nurse navigator optimize my patients. Right. That's just one simple example. Mm-hmm. I can go into others where we're looking at, you know, patients being evaluated by a non-surgical musculoskeletal expert physician. Mm-hmm. Deliver outstanding non-operative care first. Right. We know some patients are going to need surgery. Mm-hmm. We get that. But there's lots of data, particularly in the spine world, that shows that there's overutilization of surgical services. And you know, every time a patient has an operation, they have a risk of a complication. Yes. So so we can do better mm-hmm. and we need to do better mm-hmm. to drive outcomes for patients and to lower healthcare costs. Right. We are on an unsustainable trajectory and the only and, and the way people control costs now is by simply cutting reimbursement. Okay? Yeah. Because that's the only thing the government can do and that's the only thing businesses do or in general, I mean whoever the insurer is and that's not the right approach. Mm-hmm. It's not to devalue my efforts as an orthopedic surgeon, right? Don't, you're going to say, I'm going to just pay you less. No, I just need to be doing more value added work. Right. Fantastic. Dr. Connor, I do want to go into my final five <laughs> questions for you. All right. Which I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. So, my first question is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why well my favorite procedure to perform is um, total knee replacement and the reason why I enjoy it is because there's enough technical challenge mm-hmm. uh, that it's not all the same you know one knee despite is, what they say despite what they yeah one knee is not the same as another knee mm-hmm. and um, there have been some 
technical improvements with implants, with mm -hmm. custom individually made implants that I have uh, enjoyed my experience with that. And it really helps people. Mm -hmm. And because so many women suffer from knee arthritis, and I see a lot of women who come to me be because they feel that they their voice wasn't heard by their male orthopedic surgeon. Right. Oh, fantastic. Um, what are your go-to topics for Grand Round presentations? Well, my typical go-to topic for a Grand Rounds presentation or visiting professorship is focused on high-performance teams. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy talking about um, personality types and how there's four basic types and people put different labels on them, but fundamentally it's a driver or an analytical or an expressive or an amiable. I mean, there's mm -hmm. four types and we're all kind of usually mixtures of these and how, how do we communicate with each other and work best together mm -hmm. knowing that we have these different work styles and personality styles. Mm -hmm. And that has made me a better leader mm -hmm. and, um, and it's fun. It's fun right. work to do. Right. And it applies to everybody. Mm -hmm. And it, so it doesn't matter who on the team you are. And it doesn't matter which style you have that is stronger than another. Because the, a team needs every one of these styles represented. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's fun work. So that uh, the people that are the drivers, they always think they're the most important the people that are the visionaries think they're the most important right. because they create the ideas. Right. The amiables, amiables are there like, no, if you didn't have me making sure all you people work together well, you wouldn't have a team. And the <laughs> analyticals are like, if I didn't tell you the data, you wouldn't know how you're doing. Right? Yeah. And it's really getting people to see that everybody needs to value each other mm -hmm. because together we are so much more powerful than in as the sum of our parts than we are as individuals. So that usually my go-to talk is something about um, leadership, particularly high-performance teams, or often you know hip fractures. Right. Since we've done such great work here yes. with hip fractures. Yes, we definitely have. Um, what is your favorite story or memory as an orthopedic surgeon? Oh wow, that's a really tough one. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of stories from my um, sarcoma patients. I don't do orthopedic oncology here at Yale, but I did it for, you know, 20 years at Mayo. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of patients that that I followed forever. I mean, I still have patients contact me and email me after they get their checkups at Mayo to tell me that they miss me still and that no. they're okay. And, right. You know, I mean, we... I have lots of patients on my Christmas card list. I mean, not every patient makes is on the list, but there not are everyone some. makes the list. Not everybody's on the list, <laughs> uh, but probably uh, one of my fondest memories uh, in my joint replacement practice was a couple, an older couple, and the woman had a horrible hip, and she came to see me, and I said, "I, I think you really should think about hip replacement surgery." You've got a cane, you're slowing down, all, all these reasons. And then she said, well, my husband doesn't want me to have it. And I said, well, why don't you come in together, mm -hmm. right? And let, me, and let me show him your x-rays and let's just have a conversation. Right. Because you are older and you've got heart conditions. I mean, there are medical risks here. I'm not, not going to minimize 
that that there is a risk of something bad happening. Mm-hmm. So next visit, she and her husband come in. I show them the x-rays, et cetera, et cetera. And then she says, um, you know, that she's, she's not going to have the hip replacement surgery. Hmm. And I turned to her husband and I said, she loves you very, very much. <laughs> I said, and I, I'd like you all to think about this mm-hmm. because you're just going to keep getting worse. This is going to become more and more painful. And your surgical risk is only going to go up as you get older. Right. And I just would like, this is the future that I see for you. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that your husband is afraid of losing you. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to do it because he's afraid something bad's going to happen and you're going to die. Right. I said, but I need to give you the perspective of what I see your future looking like. Mm -hmm. And so she came, they came back and they decided to do it. And, uh, and she, thank God she did well. Right. And, um, and I mean, I saw her for years afterwards. And then, um, when I came here, she actually passed and her daughter who lives in Seattle reached out to me to tell me that her mother had died Mm -hmm. and how important I was to her mother. Mm Mm-hmm. I know. It still chokes me up. Yeah, I know. I know. That I could make that difference in her life and their life together. Right. Because that's what we're supposed to do as doctors. Yeah. So. That's an amazing story. Ah, wow. And I know that we've talked a lot about orthopedics and the operating room, but I was hoping you can talk to us about what your favorite activities are outside of the operating room. (laughs) Fine dining. Ooh. Yes. Not expecting that. Okay. No, no. I mean, I I enjoy um, going out with my husband or family mm-hmm. members or a group of friends and having dinner and nice glass of wine. Right. And, you know, having good um, fellowship. And mm-hmm. um, I enjoy cooking big family dinners uh, at home, mm-hmm. which is really the only time I cook. Right. I do, I do the holiday meal. Literally, mm-hmm. I do the holiday meals and like, that's it. Wow. Sometimes a Sunday dinner if right. if, if our three kids are going to mm-hmm. you know descend uh, right. into New Haven, <laughs> um, which goes again to my, right. I don't do the cooking during the week. Right. Like I don't need to. We right. can, there are other options. Yeah. And my husband is a great cook. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I enjoy going out to, to dinner. Nice. Um, my last question for you, Dr. O'Connor, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Wow, isn't that the most important question? I actually think that the best advice I could give is that we should continue, and and I I consider myself a work in progress. Right. So I say this as advice that I give myself, Hmm. is I constantly work at staying true to myself. And that means true to what drives me, what my passions are, Mm -hmm. true to why I think I'm here on this earth and what I want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And for me, from a professional standpoint, that's about transforming the delivery of care to make it better, to make it more equitable, to to help people improve their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's, that that's the work that gives me meaning. Mm-hmm. And so I keep, I, I keep advising myself that I need to make sure I'm staying focused on that 
because we can get caught up in all kinds of other really non-value added work in our lives. Yes. And that doesn't feed your soul. You need to keep feeding yourself so that you are rewarded Mm -hmm. with what you're doing. Right. And that helps you continue to do your work well Mm -hmm. and not burn out. Because if you're doing work that you feel passionate about, you simply can't burn out. It's not possible. Right. So... I think that my advice would be is to keep looking at what it is that you're passionate about and keep working to make sure that at least some of your work, of course, all of your work can't be focused on that, Mm -hmm. but enough of your work is focused on that, that you have great personal satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You know, I get up in the morning and I say, you know, this is the day the Lord has made. Mm -hmm. You know, let us rejoice and give thanks and let me help me do a good job today. Help me do good work today so that I can, in whatever ability I can, make healthcare better for diverse patients. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I feel good about it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. O'Connor. This was just absolutely amazing. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. We are on Twitter and Instagram at She Can Fix It Pod. We are also on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Venny Kirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast, and we will bring you another great episode next month.